This program is brought to you by Preserve Gold, the number one precious metals IRA provider. Call 855-962-3322. Where did COVID-19 really come from? A Senate report is shining the spotlight on Wuhan's infamous virology lab, concluding there could have been not one but two virus leaks. But key data points are still missing, and the U.S. intelligence community is holding back. Meanwhile, Beijing firmly denying the lab leak theory. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Did the COVID-19 pandemic originate from a lab accident? According to a U.S. Senate report, the answer is yes. And the lab in question, located in the original virus epicenter, Wuhan, China. The report is based on biosafety issues tied to Wuhan and factors observed in the early stages of the infection spread. At the same time, the U.S. intelligence community is holding back key data. Here's NTD's Melina Weiskup with more. Three years after the deadly CCP virus swept the globe, killing more than six million people worldwide, researchers, scientists and lawmakers are still grappling with the reality that they do not know how this virus originated. But in a rare expression of bipartisanship, both Democrats and Republicans agree that it's crucial to get to the bottom of it and agree that there's a lack of transparency and accountability. If you have nothing to cover up, why are you covering it up? The fact that we have the CCP in coercion with the WHO and Wuhan lab all still covering this up with no transparency means we should have zero funding for that. China has not been forthcoming. I think all three witnesses would agree to that. And actually, the Chinese embassy tried to stop today's hearing. An email we received from Chairman Winstrip's office said that the Chinese embassy here in the U.S. emailed him, encouraging him to cancel today's hearing. Meanwhile, other lawmakers tell us they're concerned that our own intelligence community is holding back. Take a look. They're pretty much designed to protect the government that, that they serve. And I think their unwillingness to, to reveal the true information means that they're helping cover up something. Our very government that the taxpayers are funding was complicit in spreading misinformation that could have saved lives. And this is actually a similar conclusion that we heard from Senator Marshall just yesterday when he released a 300-page report after 18 months of investigations into this. In a briefing with reporters, he told us that he's had he and his team have had a very difficult time getting certain information from the intelligence community. I asked the senator specifically what information they still need. He said everything instead of just bits and pieces. For example, he said there are they've had a difficult time getting certain classes. Uh, classified documents that they otherwise would be entitled to. And he mentioned that they're missing key data points that could actually help them prove what they concluded in that report. That is that there were actually possibly two lab leaks from Wuhan, but he says all of this is still inconclusive with a lack of that information. Senator Marshall says they still have a ton of unanswered questions that they're looking into, such as where tax money is going with regards to grants that are given for research purposes, as well as if the NIH had any way to monetize the vaccines, and also why the NIH decided to change the definition of gain-of-function research. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. 
two New York residents were arrested Monday for allegedly operating a Chinese secret police station in the city. The action is part of a crackdown on Beijing's foreign influence and attempts to target U.S.-based Chinese dissidents. Now, even the FBI is getting involved. Here's the story. Two Chinese Americans were arrested for allegedly operating a secret police station on behalf of the Chinese government in the heart of New York City. One of them, 61-year-old Lu Jianwang, was seen leaving a Brooklyn federal courthouse on Monday after he was released on bond. On the far left in this court sketch is 59-year-old Chen Jinping. The pair face charges of conspiring to act as agents of Beijing without informing U.S. authorities and obstructing justice. In addition, federal prosecutors also on Monday unveiled charges for many others suspected of harassing U.S.-based Chinese dissidents. According to authorities, Liu and Chen worked from an office in a nondescript building near the Manhattan Bridge. Before it closed in 2022, the office described itself as a gathering spot for people from China's Fujian province. The site appeared to help Chinese nationals with paperwork, like renewing their driver's licenses. But U.S. Attorney Brion Peace said on Monday there was more beneath the surface. The secret police station appears to have had a more sinister use. On at least one occasion, an official with the Chinese National Police directed one of the defendants, a U.S. citizen who worked at the secret police station, to help locate a pro-democracy activist of Chinese descent living in California. In other words, the Chinese National Police appear to have been using the station to track a U.S. resident on U.S. soil. Once they got whiffed, the FBI was onto them. Liu and Chen deleted their communications, which they later admitted to FBI agents. The charges also state Liu tried to persuade a Chinese dissident to return to China in 2018. The victim reported he was repeatedly harassed, his family in the U.S. received threats of violence, and Chinese officers harassed his family in China. U.S. prosecutors on Monday also unveiled charges for 42 other Chinese nationals. They include 34 public security officers belonging to a task force allegedly operating as a troll farm, creating fake profiles to harass and threaten dissidents and activists online. And eight Chinese officials are now listed as defendants in a case announced in 2020, charging a former China-based executive of Zoom with disrupting video meetings commemorating the 1989 Tiananmen Square protests, which is a taboo subject in China. Beijing's embassy in Washington has yet to respond to a request for comment. Last October, charges were unsealed against seven Chinese nationals, alleged to be part of a state-sponsored campaign to strong-arm dissidents to repatriate to China. In November, FBI Director Christopher Wray told a Senate committee he was very concerned about the presence of stations in other U.S. cities like the alleged one in New York. Based on the DOJ statement, one of the two arrested, Liu Jiangwang, participated in 2015 counter-protests in Washington, D.C. That was against members of a religious group that is forbidden in China. Through our own research, we found this group is the meditation practice Falun Gong. The FBI launched a website where victims can report foreign government attempts to stalk, intimidate, or assault people in the United States. The site is www.fbi.gov slash investigate slash counterintelligence slash transnational dash repression. Uyghur American lawyer Nuri Turkel, a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute think tank, welcomed the arrests and condemned Beijing's opening police outposts in the U.S. The abrasiveness um, and the, their willingness to take 
that kind of uh, uh, actions on American soil is bone chilling. It is a long overdue law enforcement action uh, to push back against uh, China's transnational repression that have been taking place um, in the homeland here in the United States and, and as well as in Europe. This kind of law enforcement actions definitely helps to build some confidence uh, among those activists uh, risking their uh, well-being and family safety, personal safety to speak, speak out against the uh, repression underway in China. The Chinese Communist Party sanctioned Nuri Turkel in 2021. In just over a year, Chinese police forced 230,000 Chinese nationals living abroad to return to China. This, according to a report from Safeguard Defenders, a human rights organization that monitors disappearances in China. Chinese authorities say they persuaded the nationals to return to China voluntarily. But is there more going on behind the scenes? A defected senior diplomat from China tells us more. Methods used for that so-called persuasion include denying their children inside China the right to education and punishing their relatives in China that don't cooperate with the police. Chen Yonglin is a former senior diplomat at the Chinese consulate in Sydney. He says the Chinese Communist Party uses these methods often in the name of countering corruption. Chen defected to Australia in 2005. The reasoning of anti-corruption sounds justified. Western countries don't want those corrupt Chinese officials causing trouble or instability in their relationships with China. Some small countries have basically succumbed. For small countries in Asia, Africa, Latin America and Pacific Island countries, it's really easy for the CCP to kidnap Chinese nationals. Chun added that some Chinese embassy staff are actually police officers, saying they hide their real identities in order to carry out special tasks overseas. If China is trying to send public security officers to the United States, the United Kingdom or Australia, these countries won't accept them. They may monitor their activities and may not even issue them visas. But if they stay in the embassies, other countries can't control them. They can stalk foreign targets, even kidnap or assassinate them. They can threaten their family members and create all kinds of accidents. Chen says one of the most famous examples is the kidnapping of Gui Minhai. Gui is a Swedish citizen. He was abducted in Thailand in 2015 after publishing books critical of China's leaders. He's now detained in China. Another U.S. state weighing in on a TikTok ban. On Friday, Montana lawmakers passed a bill that would prohibit mobile app stores from offering TikTok to users in its state. The measure could potentially make Montana the first U.S. state to issue a full ban on the popular app. That bill has now landed on Governor Greg Gianforte's desk. Let's zoom in. TikTok is a national security threat. This app steals information and data from users and its ability to share that data with the Chinese Communist Party is unacceptable and infringes on Montana's rights to privacy. The bill is known as SB 419 and it was approved by 54 to 43 votes by the Montana House. If enforced, all mobile app stores would be subjected to fines every time a resident accesses TikTok in that state. Governor Gianforte, on the other hand, has yet to decide whether to sign it into law. His spokesperson said the lawmaker will carefully consider the bill. Jenna Leventhoff, the senior policy counsel of ACLU, opposes the ban, suggesting that TikTok is often used for businesses. 
you know, a lot of those people came to Capitol Hill last month to tell Congress that, you know, they rely on TikTok for their income. So there's absolutely an economic element to this. I think that was overlooked. I think last year, Governor Gianforte issued a TikTok ban on state government devices, suggesting that the app posed threats to state data security. TikTok and its parent company ByteDance are currently drawing skepticism from U.S. lawmakers. Just last month, a congressional committee grilled TikTok's chief executive over Chinese propaganda and alleged espionage through the program. U.S. officials also worry that U.S. user data might land in the CCP's hands. That's based on a Chinese law that gives Beijing full access to information from domestic companies. TikTok CEO even admitted that ByteDance still has access to U.S. user data, contradicting to his previous claims. To pledge loyalty to the Chinese Communist Party, ByteDance established an internal department set to function as a censorship machine. Amid heightened tensions with China, Washington has sent about 200 soldiers to Taiwan. The troops are there to train Taiwan's armed forces. That's according to reports from Taiwanese media, citing unnamed military sources. This comes after Chinese warships simulated strikes on Taiwan during a drill. Most of these American officers have combat experience, and they are expected to improve the Taiwanese Army's overall combat abilities. On Sunday, the U.S. sent a missile destroyer to sail through the Taiwan Strait. In a statement, the U.S. Navy said the journey demonstrated America's commitment to a free and open Indo-Pacific. Looking to Europe, a group of French lawmakers is visiting Taiwan. If something happens to Taiwan, it will change the world. The officials said France will focus on sustaining the status quo in Taiwan. The visit comes after French President Emmanuel Macron said Europe should avoid getting involved in cross-strait tensions. Beijing is lashing out over a laundry list of word and actions from the West. Here's the lineup of comments Tuesday from China's foreign ministry. Spokesman Wang Wenbin commented about a recent communique between the foreign ministers in the Group of Seven forum. Asked about it by the press, he called a statement made by the G7, quote, full of arrogance, prejudice and sinister intentions against China. He accused the foreign officials of interfering in China's internal affairs and said Beijing had lodged complaints with G7 host country Japan. The G7 powers met to criticize China's coercion of Taiwan and militarization of the South China Sea. Next on the list, Wang also disputed U.S. accusations of a Chinese secret police station in New York. Federal agents arrested two New York residents just a day earlier for allegedly running a covert Chinese police station in Manhattan's Chinatown. Prosecutors say it's used to target dissidents. Wang called the case political manipulation and said the overseas police outposts don't exist. Also linked to reported Chinese espionage, the Dutch spy agency this week called China the greatest security threat to the Netherlands. That's in an annual threat assessment released Monday. The Netherlands regards China as a major trading partner, but according to the report, Beijing's military ambitions are driving attempts to obtain Dutch and Western technology. China urged officials to abandon what was described as a Cold War mentality. Lastly, Wang stated firm opposition to a reported weapons purchase, Taiwan, soon to buy 400 U.S. land-launched harpoon missiles. The Pentagon announced a $1.17 billion contract on April 7th without naming the buyer. Production is expected to finish by March 2029. 
Chinese brands are taking over Russia's smartphone market. That's according to figures from local electronics retailer MVideo Eldorado. It says Chinese makers took more than 70 percent of the market share in the first quarter of this year. That's up from around 50 percent last year. Here's the story. The surge comes after Apple and Samsung curtailed sales there following the start of conflict in Ukraine though both brands do remain available through unofficial or parallel imports. They've sank to third and fourth spots respectively in the Russian market. The top two positions go to Chinese makers Xiaomi and Realme. Moscow won't object to the shift, with Russia trying to wean itself off Western technology. The Kremlin has told officials involved in next year's presidential election to stop using Apple products. That's over fears they could be vulnerable to Western espionage. Now the change in the smartphone market is being mirrored on Russia's roads, where Chinese brands are increasingly replacing Western makes of car. Coming up, now we zoom in on China's growing influence in the Middle East. Did the United States leave a vacuum for the communist country to fill? And what should Washington's next steps look like? Arya Lightstone, former special envoy for the Abraham Accords, shares his perspective. More on that after the break, here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. As the United States leaves the Middle East behind, who will fill the void? And how should the U.S. address Iran so other countries will follow America's lead? Earlier, we spoke to Arya Lightstone, former special envoy for the Abraham Accords, for more. Since the Afghanistan evacuation or debacle, I think people have been looking for what the U.S. is going to lead in. And whether it's Ukraine, where we acted late and not effectively enough, or whether it's in Southeast Asia, or whether it's in the Middle East, uh, you look uh, on our own border, our southern border, and now reports on our northern border, if you look for where the United States of America has been from a policy perspective, we've either been wrong or late or worse, both. And, uh, And in that case, you just have a series of countries around the world who are looking and saying, maybe the United States of America is not going to lead. And And the important thing for your viewers to understand is, that doesn't mean that there aren't leaders on the world stage. That vacuum gets filled. It just gets filled by actors that are not the United States. So when people sit there and advocate that the United States should take a step back, that's fine. Who's going to take that step forward? It's going to be China. It's going to be Russia. It's going to be Iran. A world where those are the leaders is a terrifying world. And on that note, it seems we're seeing certain alliances form. North Korea, Iran, and Saudi seem to be, Syria seem to be moving closer together. In terms of countries in the Middle East, do they actually have a choice when it comes to choosing which side they want to work with? Well, it becomes more complicated because when the United States of America is clear and consistent, and what I mean clear, consistent over more than one election cycle, then countries have the ability to sort of pick and choose. But it's very easy for the United States of America to change its policy when their problems, our problems, are 6,000 miles away. When they're on your border, when they're on your doorstep, that becomes far more challenging. And right now, you actually see a very interesting scenario in the Middle East where you have leaders trying to figure out how to bring in previously uh, shunned leaders back into the fold. I'm optimistic that uh, that their motivations are pure. I don't know if they are or they're not to try to help even the people of Syria. But you have a separate story. When you've got 
Putin standing with Khomeini in Iran, and nobody else is doing anything about it. When they're sitting with Xi in China, then you wind up having to say, who's going to be the force of moral clarity in the world? Everybody's just going to act in their very own micro, minute interests, and that's a dangerous place to be. And speaking of this dangerous place to be, what should the U.S. be doing right now? What kind of message should the U.S. be sending? Uh, I think we should ex be exceptionally clear, at least in the Middle East. Right now, you've got a rise in terrorism. There have been comments coming out of uh, in Israel. There have been comments coming out of the United States of America asking for calm on all sides. There's, there's no all sides in this issue. It's not a moral equivalence. We should ask for a immediate halting of terrorism, and we should halt our funding of the Palestinian Authority until they get terrorism under control. That sends a message not just to the Palestinian terrorists, but it sends a message to the broader Middle East that we are not only going to say something, but we're going to back it up. We should stop negotiating with Iran immediately. We should tell them that they are out. They're out if it's a Republican. They're out if they're a Democrat. They're out until they give up their nukes, not for a short while, but for good. These are basic things that we should be able to articulate very clearly. And if we do that, all of the other countries in the region will be able to follow our lead. And earlier you mentioned the amount of resources that the Middle East can offer up. So just how important is this? Give us some examples of that. Oh, I just look at the announcements that, uh, that OPEC made, uh, the oil producing nations made in terms of reducing their supply and what that does to the market. This is a country, this is a country, this is a region that regardless of how much we want to rely on wind and solar, and I'm a big fan of wind and solar, but that is not what most of the world is powered on. Most of the world is still powered on uh, natural gas and oil. So the region that controls a substantial portion of that which is needed for the rest of the world will control an enormous amount of the way the world goes, either economically, hopefully not militarily, but in terms of prosperity. What we had done, what President Trump had done in his administration was he harnessed that value and that leverage to say, let's move forward into the next century together. Instead of litigating last year's wars, let's move forward. And what wound up happening now is we've gone back and reset all of that and said, wait, wait, let's bring Iran back into the fold. Let's shun anybody who has oil, because if you have oil, which is not good for the planet, you must not be good for the planet, which is uh, a pretty insane way to look at things, if you ask me. It does sound like there's a lot of rocky international relations going on right now, but are you any last words you'd like to share? Yeah, be optimistic. I still think that the countries, when they're looking to make a decision, look reflexively to the United States of America. And I think that we've got a strong bipartisan leadership in Congress, and I think we need to make that even stronger. And I think we should all ask from our elected officials in whatever upcoming election that we've got is to project American strength, not because we necessarily want to be the number one superpower, but when we are, we need to act like it. And if God forbid we're not, look who else is waiting to follow in our footsteps. So should we, be, we should be proud about who we are and what we represent. We should double down on that and not run away from it. It does seem if there's a vacuum, right, someone else will fill it in. Maybe not who we want, but R.A. Lightstone, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me again. That's all for today's China In Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you tomorrow.